Well, last week we discussed one of the major issues that plagues all of mankind, which is death. This week we'll discuss another issue that plagues mankind for which the Word of God also has an answer. That is the issue of anxiety. The word that is translated anxiety in our text for this morning means to be apprehensive or to be unduly concerned about something. I think that's interesting. To be unduly concerned, to be preoccupied, to have our mind arrested by one thing to the degree that it becomes unnecessary, unnecessarily harmful for us. It's sometimes translated by the English word worry. The word worry has an interesting etymology. One author said it this way, the old English root from which we get our word worry means to strangle. He says, if you've ever really worried, you know how it does strangle a person. In fact, worry has definite physical consequences, headaches, neck pains, ulcers, even back pains. Worry affects our thinking, our digestion, and even our coordination. Anxiety is indeed a plague in the life of man. Once it takes hold, it can become in him paralyzing, terrorizing, and even deadly. If you've had anxiety about something, then you know how it can put a stranglehold on your mind. Anxiety has no part in the life of a citizen of the kingdom. In one sense, it's really completely irrational. Last week, we discussed that as citizens of the kingdom, we have hope in the return of our Savior, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. This hope is given to us as a part of our new life. It is a rock-solid assurance that every believer has that Jesus will not abandon us, but that he will return, that he has gone to make a place for us, and that he will return for us to take us to that place. We also mentioned that his second coming would bring full redemption. That means that he will grant us a new glorified body fit for heaven. Even those who have fallen asleep in Christ will be granted that new glorified body. In fact, they're going to go ahead of us when Jesus returns. So what do we really need to worry about? The end is clear. The end is decided. We don't have to wait for the sequel to know the answer, the end, what's going to happen, right? We know Jesus is going to win, and because he's going to win, we're going to win also. So what do we have to be anxious about? Well, sometimes we're anxious about our jobs. Are we working hard enough? Is the boss pleased? Will my coworker advance before me? Again, the word anxiety has the root idea of being unduly concerned about something. True confessions here. I have a problem when it comes to work and being unduly concerned about my work. I'm not trying to climb the corporate ladder or anything like that or, you know, trying to advance. Um, I'd rather be involved in full-time ministry. That's part of the frustration for me. And I really have the luxury of not taking my work home with me. I don't have to. I can leave for the day and be done with it, except it doesn't always happen that way because sometimes it's still up here, you know? Something happens that frustrates me. I tend to chew on it over and over again until I've exhausted myself and my mind. I have a hard time letting things go when I'm, when I start thinking about it. Sometimes it affects me even over vacations. We've taken a number of um, short vacations over this past uh, summer, something that we haven't really been able to do for a number of years now. But um, we've had some extra time, so we've been able to do that. And inevitably... Um, you know, if we take a week away, I'll go away for the first couple days, I'm still thinking about it. 
still chewing on it, still just trying to get rid of it, trying to relax, trying to settle down. By the time I start to settle down and relax, it's time to go home. (laughs) So if this message means nothing for you, it means a lot to me right now, just being honest. We have anxiety about other things too, though, right? We worry about our finances. Do I have enough for my bills? Will I have enough to eat? Will I have enough for that nice vacation? We worry about other life matters. Will my husband or wife be saved? Will they continue to be faithful to me? Does that friend still care about me after we've had that argument? Will the kids be well adjusted? Will they be influenced too much by the world? Will they come to faith in Christ? What about that medical test that I just had? Is it going to be bad? Is it going to be good? What's going to happen? What are the results? What kind of procedures am I going to need? How do I make it in life now that I no longer have blank, whatever the blank is? Again, God desires for citizens of his kingdom to have peace. In his word, he has provided a way for us to have peace in the midst of our anxieties, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Again, we're back in the book of Philippians, chapter 4 this time. If you haven't turned there, go ahead. I'm going to read for you all of chapter 4 for context. We're actually going to focus in on verses 6 through 9 for this morning. Philippians chapter 4. Starting at verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice greatly in the Lord that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Pray with me. Father, again, thank you for this morning and the opportunity we have to gather. Thank you for your word, your truth, particularly this truth that we're going to dig into this morning. Help us to have a listening heart, uh, as Solomon prayed for, uh, to receive what you would have us to receive this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In our text for this morning, Paul lays out God's remedy for anxiety. How do we have peace in the midst of anxious times? There will be three points in our outline. In order to bring us peace in the midst of anxiety, God provides prayer, that's verses 6 and 7, his promises in verse 8, and his people in verse 9. Prayer, his promises, and his people. Yes, I am alliterating again. I can't get away from it. It's a sickness. A little background on the book of Philippians. There are three things to know about the church at Philippi. I didn't mention much background last week. First, they were largely poor. He references the churches of Macedonia in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, of which Philippi was a leading city when he says in 2 Corinthians, We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. And he goes on to brag about the churches in Macedonia, how they gave toward the preaching of the gospel and to support the, the churches in Jerusalem. He was bragging to them, uh, bragging about them to the church at Corinth. Second, they were persecuted. Paul was severely persecuted at the first preaching of the gospel in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. The believers there continued to suffer. Paul exhorts them in Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. How's that for an encouraging message, right? Like we want to know that we're not going to suffer. Paul's like, no, God has blessed you with the privilege of suffering for his sake. It really is a blessing when you think about it. We get to share in Christ's sufferings as we continue his work here on earth. Third, they had a problem with unity. Paul is constantly exhorting them to be unified. Chapter 1, verse 27, stand firm in the spirit. Two, uh, verse 2, and even, I mean, really just about all of chapter 2, be of the same mind, maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And also chapter 4, verse 2, he says, live in harmony in the Lord. They had unity problems that Paul was addressing. In other words, this group of believers who had become very dear to Paul, he refers to them in a very affectionate way multiple times throughout the text. This church had plenty of reasons to be anxious about any number of things. Certainly it was part of Paul's desire to encourage them in the midst of their anxiety with the truth of their heavenly citizenship and all that that affords. In fact, any study of this book would immediately take note of the repeated refrain of joy. It's mentioned nine times in this short letter. He talks about his own joy over the proclamation of the gospel in chapter 1, verse 18. His joy in giving his life for the church in chapter 2, verse 17. He invites them to re rejoice over his, um, even his imprisonment in chapter 2, verse 18, and speaks of his desire for their joy as they're reunited with Epaphroditus in chapter 2, verse 28. In Philippians chapter 3, our chapter from last week, Paul exhorts them to have joy in the Lord by being watchful against false teachers. 
At the end of chapter 4, verse 10, he speaks of his joy in receiving their monetary gifts. Paul is talking about joy in this text, in this entire letter. It's significant that he's exhorting them to rejoice in the Lord, in part, again, because he's writing from prison. He was in prison for the cause of Christ, for the preaching of the gospel. He's sitting there. You know, most people would probably just be grumbling, rotting away in a prison cell. Paul is writing to other churches, writing to believers to encourage them in the Lord. It's also significant that Paul is exhorting the believers to rejoice because joy is another one of those character traits that ought to be true of every believer. We talked about hope last week. Joy is another one of those things that should characterize every believer in Jesus Christ. We're commanded to rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 32, verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 40, verse 16, Let all who seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let those who love thy salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. I like Isaiah 25, 8 and 9. It says, He will swallow up death for all time, looking forward to the end times. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Christ came for us so that we might have joy. He says in John 15, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy might be made full. And we know that God has given his Holy Spirit to us so that we might have joy. In Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And he goes on from there. We should be joyful people, but again, the reality is that we still at times become anxious. Well, again, as we come to our text for this morning, Paul mentions the idea of joy again. He's drawing a close to this letter, and he's leaving the believers with a number of quick exhortations to kind of wrap up. There are two ladies mentioned at the beginning of chapter 4 who were clearly not getting along very well. They were not rejoicing in the Lord. As a good pastor, Paul reminded them of the bigger truth that they need to be people of joy. And then he addresses the root of the particular issue that they're having. There are times when I have to speak to my girls about some conflict that they're having. It used to be so much easier to use my girls as an illustration when they didn't know that I was talking about them. I can't really get around it now. But but there are times when we need to address some kind of conflict, and I usually lead with something like this. Instead of arguing with one another, you should be loving each other. Your sisters, that's what sisters do. That's what you ought to do. You ought to love, care for, um, take care of one another. I'd lead with that because that is the truth. That's the big idea, the overarching truth that ought to inform their relationships with one another. Then I address the particular issue that they have. You ought to love one another, and sin ought to cover, uh, love ought to cover a multitude of sins, right? You should be okay with not being right. If you're loving the other person, it's okay not to be right all the time. If you're loving the other person, you should give preference to them in this issue or that issue, whatever it might be. In Philippians 4, Paul says, in effect, we ought to be people of joy. We ought to be characterized by joy. You two having a quarrel does not allow for all men to know that the Lord is with you and in you and that you have in your heart the desire to see his face. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. 
And with that said, Paul goes on, it seems, to address this underlying issue of anxiety that they have. Again, what follows is those three provisions from God in order to bring peace in the midst of anxiety, prayer, his promises, and his people. Let's look at that first point. In order to bring peace in the midst of anxiety, God has provided prayer. Verse 6, again, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And I said that these are provisions to provide peace in the midst of anxiety. Clearly, that's Paul aim, Paul's aim based on the first words in verse 6, be anxious for nothing. He is writing this for them to understand that they should not be anxious for any reason. And if they are anxious, that they should do something about it and not remain in it. Be anxious for nothing. I've already defined anxiety and the idea behind the English word worry earlier. Do not allow anything to put a stranglehold on your mind or your heart such that it becomes harmful for you. I mean, if you think about it, one of the reasons why we ought to rejoice in the Lord, which we kind of alluded to earlier, is because he, above all other people, above all other things in the created cosmos, is worthy of such attention. He alone is worthy of such adoration. He alone is worthy of that laser-like focus such that nothing else can penetrate through our gaze. He is the ever-present, supremely valuable being. Thus, there's always joy to be had in him. But if we're anxious and our thoughts are filled up with something infinitely less than him, we're not glorifying him. Thus, we're bringing dishonor to him in our thoughts and affections. It's only when we are at peace with the world around us that we can properly give the Lord the attention and honor that he, desire, he deserves. Again, be anxious for nothing but pray. And what is prayer? Paul uses two different words in this verse to signify the act of prayer, translated prayer and supplication. I don't see any need to draw any major distinctions between the two. Some have described prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving as different components of prayer. I'll come back to that point in a bit. At any rate, those components are in parallel to what he says next, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, prayer is very simply to be defined from this context as letting your requests be made known to God. It's telling God what you want. It's telling him what's going on, what's happening in your life. It's communication. If you are anxious about something, if you are unduly concerned about something, if you have your mind unhealthily preoccupied or strangled by something, Paul says, give it to God in prayer. There's much that can be said about prayer. We won't be able to fathom the depths of the biblical teaching on prayer, but we'll kind of scratch the surface a bit. We're commanded to pray in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to pray without ceasing. Certainly doesn't mean here that we spend every waking moment in prayer, right? But rather that we ought to have an attitude of prayer at all times. We ought to be in constant communication with the Lord about all things. Paul says simply in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, be devoted to prayer. This without ceasing, devoted kind of prayer is at times spontaneous, but it's also dedicated. In other words, you'll have some days when you're in constant communication with the Lord throughout the day, but there shouldn't be a time in your life when you fail to have specific devoted times of prayer. We sing of that sweet hour of prayer. I love that hymn. Not just because it sells hymnals, but because the songwriter understood of the importance of devoted times of prayer. Jesus went off alone by himself. He, he left his disciples, went off alone by himself to have time 
in communion with his father. Jesus, the beloved son of God, had to do that. How much more so should we? We are commanded to pray, but more than that, as citizens of heaven, yea, as children of God, we ought to long to pray. Jesus said, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it shall be opened. What man is there among you when his son asks him for a loaf, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil... Jesus always knew how to encourage people, didn't he? If you then, being evil, he just got right to the point. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? How much more? Prayer is all about our relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's an act of faith, of the kind of dependence that a child has upon their father, pleading for provision from his generous hands. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, Verses 6 and 7, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Prayer is an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and faith in his care. If you know that your difficulties are as a result of the sovereign, mighty hand of God pressing down upon you, Peter makes this point throughout that letter, that our trials are not haphazard, they're not completely out of control, They are all a part of God's sovereign plan to sanctify us. If you know that that's true, Peter says, bow yourself low, and as you experience anxiety from his hand pressing down upon you, simply cast it back on him. And do that with confidence, because you know he cares for you. Believers ought to have regular both formal and informal, times of prayer with the faith that our Heavenly Father desires to hear, cares for our well-being, and is willing to provide good things for us. John Knox said this about prayer. He says, It is the very branch which springs forth of true faith. If fire be without heat or the burning lamp without light, then true faith may be without fervent prayer. How are you doing with that? We say that we have faith in God, but when we have those anxieties, those things that we're overly concerned about that occupy the space of our minds excessively, do we in faith give those things to God? Again, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. James says you have not because you ask not. Are you harboring some anxieties, things which have a stranglehold on your souls, which God is inclined to free you of if you would only give it to him? In prayer. Well, God wants you to show your faith in Him by telling Him what you want. He actually wants to hear you say it. He cares to hear you say it. We express all our woes on social media. We look for those likes when we tell about something awful that happened to us, right? Sometimes we go and we sit on somebody's couch and we spend hundreds of dollars per hour to talk to them about our woes when that person's going to have to go and sit on somebody else's couch to talk to them about their woes, because that's the way it works. But we have an almighty, sovereign, heavenly Father who wants to hear about our woes. He wants to hear about our worries. He wants to take them from us and give us peace. We need to avail ourselves of him. 
If you believe that, then you would pray. Well, if you ever come to our home, I apologize now because there's about 30 steps up to our first level. It's a double-stacked townhouse, just like it sounds. We're on the top third and fourth floor, so you have a lot of steps to go up to. Of course, that makes grocery shopping fun. Um, There are times when I'm not able to be around when that happens, grocery shopping, that is, but I am able to help. It actually brings me joy to be able to serve my family by carrying those bags up to the top level. Don't tell my kids this, but I love to see my little girl's eyes light up when I have like 20 or 30 bags in my arms because, you know, guys only like to take one trip. So we just kind of load ourselves down like a beast of burden and just kind of, you know, traipse our way up the steps. And their little eyes will light up and say, wow, look at Daddy carrying all those bags. I'm like, yeah. (laughs) It's my pleasure to take the burden from them. That's the pleasure of a father. And that's the pleasure of our Heavenly Father. That's his joy. He's designed prayer, the means by which we're able to cast our cares upon him. And it is his joy to take it from us. I want to say something more about prayer before we move on. I mentioned the aspects of the components of prayer. Some have likened the term prayer in our text to adoration, meaning ascribing value or worth to God in prayer. Then there's the term supplication, which is the act of making requests. The third component is that of thanksgiving. That is the one that I think is most important for us to think on as we consider this idea of combating anxiety. In prayer... Our prayers, our casting of our anxieties upon the Lord, we are commanded to give thanks. But why? It's because the act of giving thanks, in the act of giving thanks, we're made to rehearse all the reasons why we have to give thanks. Right? If you're commanded to give thanks, and you have to think about the reasons why you have to give thanks. So you're having trouble, you're having some anxiety about something, but God says, you know what? I want you to give it to me. I want you to cast that upon me. But as you're casting that woe on me, I want you to think about all the different ways that I've worked in your life already. I want you to think about all the ways that I've been faithful to you already. I want you to think about all the times that I've come forth, come through for you, all the different times that I provided you with peace. All the ways that I've blessed you in your life thus far as you've walked this journey, I want you to think about those things and I want you to utter those things back to me. That's faith. Our prayers, our casting of our anxieties ought to be always made with thanksgiving. I remember our first major family vacation was a trip to uh, Delaware, a beach house in Delaware that my wife's aunt owned. And so we went up and um, we'd never been there before. We had a great time until someone got sick. And long story short, the trip ended with a trip to the ER in Delaware, a place we'd never been to before. And uh, beyond that, an ambulance ride overnight back to Maryland. And um, for some of us and the rest of us had to pack up and come home afterward. So that was a little frustrating. Our next major family vacation we get to go on, we're excited, and it rains the whole time we're there. It's raining, it's cold. We're hanging out on the beach, but we're like all wrapped up in our jackets. The girls are just kind of like huddled together. And I just wanted to grumble. I mean, I'm just being honest again. I was like, Lord, really? I mean, we're out on this vacation. It's awesome. It's amazing. It's a beautiful place, but it's raining. Come on now. What's going on? My wife and I started talking about it, and she's like, you know what? We're together. 
We don't have to make a trip to the ER this time. We don't have to be separated. No one got sick. It's amazing. It's a blessing. And we just started rejoicing, even in the midst of the raininess. That's how it works. Our family has in the past worked on writing a Thanksgiving journal, one where we would write out those things for which we're thankful for as a family. Daily as we pray together, we begin our prayers with thanksgiving for his goodness of our day's events before anything else. Paul says in Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or complaining. That's all things. Even getting up for work in the morning, right? Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Even when we have those difficult circumstances and those woes that we have to deal with, do all things without grumbling or complaining. It's easier to complain than to give thanks. But intentionally giving thanks is both glorifying to God, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. It makes us shine as lights in the world, and it's good for our own souls, especially when we're tempted to grumble. Moving on, the effect of our prayer uttered in faith with thanksgiving is expressed in the next verse. When you're anxious, pray, and when you pray, God will provide his peace. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I believe that Paul explains peace a bit more here because it helps to set the tone for the next few verses. Again, this is all about God's provisions to bring peace in the midst of anxiety. This is the kind of peace that God brings is the point. Notice first that he says, and, by this Paul signifies that the peace of God will necessarily follow from prayer. You can count on it. When you choose to pray in faith with thanksgiving in order to cast your cares upon the Lord, then you can believe that God will give you peace. That is a promise. And it is the peace of God. This is not the answer to prosperity preaching or name it, claim it theology. This flies in the face of it. God does not here promise to provide the specific answer to your requests, right? He doesn't say that he's going to give you exactly what you asked for. What he does promise to give you as a result of your faithful casting of your anxieties upon him is peace. The problem is not what we lack. The problem is our anxiety. Do you get that? God is more concerned about your heart, the state of your soul and your mind, your emotional, psychological, your whole soul well-being. He's more concerned about this than the specific request. There are other passages that we could go to about how God answers prayers, but that's for another Sunday. This morning, the point is, in this passage, that where we're anxious and we pray for the purpose of giving our anxieties to God, that he will not fail not only to take those anxieties away, but also to give us peace. In theology, we talk about the tension between those things that are God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Prayer is man's responsibility. In the context of this message, when we are anxious, God is unwilling to simply remove the anxiety from us. He requires action from us. And this action is not arbitrary. It is an action which signifies our faith in his ability to help us as well as his goodness. It is responding in faith to our anxiety and praying and trusting him to provide us with peace. Not just any peace, but it's supernatural peace. Look again at what he says. He says it's the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. And what does that mean? Well, there are two options in terms of translating this. One option is that his peace accomplishes more than any human forethought or scheming can achieve, one author said. 
In other words, you can't think your way out of anxiety. You need the power of God's peace. The second option is that the peace of God is completely beyond all power of human comprehension. And that's meant to emphasize the uniqueness of God's peace, that it is in and of itself unfathomable. He says the word surpasses, lends itself to this latter interpretation. So we're going to go with that one. In other words, Paul is saying that when you pray in faith, casting your cares or anxieties upon the shoulders of our great God, then he promises to give you his peace. His amazingly great peace, his uncomparably great peace, his incomprehensibly great peace. It's supernatural peace. It's not your peace, it's not the world's peace, it's not peace that we get through chanting or emptying our minds of thoughts. It's peace that comes from our great God above to saturate our minds and our hearts. Does anybody need that this morning? I love that we spend so much time in prayer on Sunday mornings here. It's a blessing to corporately cast our cares upon the Lord. And you know, it works. This whole promise of prayer works when someone else prays for you too. Paul spoke of spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, and he says this. He's listing all the different weapons that we have to wage spiritual warfare. And then he comes toward the end and he starts to talk about prayer. He says in chapter 6, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Now, maybe you knock prayer out of the park for yourself. Maybe you just don't have any anxieties. I mean, if you don't, that's great. That's wonderful. But what about your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? Do you pray for them? I mean, do you, do you even know what prayer requests your brothers and sisters who are sitting right beside you have? Do you engage them enough to know what their anxieties are so that you can labor in prayer for them, for their peace? Do you love that much? Back in our verse, Philippians 4, 7, what does this incomprehensible peace do? He says, it shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word for guard is a word used to describe a military detachment stationed at a city. In other words, this incomprehensibly great peace that God has will be like a military detachment keeping watch over the gates of your hearts and minds. It's provision, it's protection, it's a promise. You will have a guard over your heart and mind. Now take heart and mind here to simply mean the whole immaterial part of man, the emotion, intellect, and will, the thoughts that are processed. All of your inner self will be guarded, protected by the garrison force of the incomprehensibly great peace that God gives. I'll ask again, does anyone need that this morning? Then do you pray? It never fails that the Lord provides ample opportunity for me to be humbled before his word, particularly when I have the opportunity to preach. This week has been particularly trying at work for a number of different reasons. Friday morning, my wife noticed and mentioned that our van was shuddering while she was driving. And it's done that before. I mean, you know, it's, it's an older van. So we're like, all right, you know, took it over to our mechanic. He's a trustworthy fella. Had him look at it. He didn't see anything at the time. Later on in the evening, we have VBS. She's on the way back home from VBS, and she's like, this is not good. Something, something's going on. The, the van is still shuddering. It's getting worse. She gets to within maybe, I don't know, 100 feet of the house, and it just shuts off. 
And so I'm like, oh, great. And uh, we uh, ended up getting it over to uh, the mechanic again. And he's like, you know what? I mean, he's been keeping this thing going for us for a while. It's a 2001. So it's, uh, it's had some years on it. We've driven quite a bit, um, taken a number of trips. But uh, he said, you know what? Just don't waste your money trying to fix it. It's done. And so I'm thinking, that's, that's what I need right now. <laughs> another thing to think about, another thing to figure out. I'm tired from work. I'm trying to edit my sermon on worry. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Hold on. I'm worried about worrying about my van because I need to focus on my sermon on worry. Something's not quite right here. I told you guys I needed this reminder, right? You know, it's often the mundane things in life that get us. Those big ticket items, we instinctively run to the Lord and we cling to him. But sometimes it's just the everyday things of life that really, really get us and wear us down. Those are the things that cause us to be unduly concerned or strangled with concern about those things. Do we instantly in faith with thanksgiving make our requests known to God in hopes of receiving his gracious provisions of peace? Now, I know that God has always provided for us. I mean, he provided that van for us. He provided our car for us. I know he'll provide again. I really am confident, absolutely confident that he will. I was thinking about it, and I said, you know what? God has always been faithful. You know, doing the whole Thanksgiving thing. God has always been faithful. He's always taken care of us. I know I don't have to worry about that. And I really am at peace with it right now. I mean, check back with me in a couple days, um, you know, once we start getting into it. But right now I'm in peace. And I praise God for that. Thanksgiving really does work. We really should cast our cares and our anxieties on him. Paul says again, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's our great hope. That's the thing that we put our confidence in that God cares for us and that in his care and in his love, he will provide a remedy for our troubles and our trials. Moving on. Look again at the text. In order to provide peace in the midst of anxiety, God has provided prayer, but he's also provided his promises. Verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Paul says to think on these things. The issue is anxiety. The solution is the peace of God. How do we get from anxiety to peace? Paul says pray, and second, think on the right kinds of things. We define anxiety, again, as being apprehensive or unduly concerned about something. We have this overwhelming sense of concern for one thing. It occupies our minds, our hearts, and chokes the life out of anything else in our thoughts. It gets to the root of that English word worry, again, meaning to strangle. When things are hard, we tend to brood over them. We think on it. We meditate on it. We look at it from multiple sides. We know deep down inside, as Jesus said, our thinking about it and worrying about it is not going to add a single cubit to our lives. But we still try to. We try to figure it out as best we can. 
Maybe we start to get frustrated and angry about it. We start to think about how much we don't deserve this trouble. We think about how much the world has wronged us, how much if there are people involved, those people are evil for being a part of this whole thing. Maybe you're not a brooder. Maybe you're an ignorer. We use the phrase kick the can down the road to describe how politicians act sometimes when there are things that need to be addressed and they don't want to address it. They usually end up leaving it for another time or someone else to deal with. Or instead of completely ignoring it, you do what the world does and you try to distract yourself from it. You drown your anxiety by dulling your senses with drugs, alcohol, indulging in immorality to feel some kind of pleasure, to avoid thinking about the pain. Or perhaps you simply entertain yourself to death through social media, gaming, movies, your favorite TV show, books, virtual reality, anything that can get you engaged in a fantasy life that's not your own so you don't have to deal with the problems. But those things don't bring the peace of God. When we're anxious about something, we need to find path to peace. Paul says it all has to do with the what you think on. Again, he says, finally, brethren, and by this I don't believe that he means to suggest that he's closing. You've got to be careful when preachers say finally because it's not always going to be the last thing. I think he's just trying to draw his intent, their attention to the importance of this point. Again, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, listen to those words, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, think on these things. What does that describe? His word is intentionally vague here, I think, because he's trying to force us to make a conclusion based on what he says. What could possibly fit that description? Certainly not the horrible things we tend to be anxious about, right? Certainly there's nothing more true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, worthy of praise than the word of God. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, much more than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, he says, by them thy servant is worn, and keeping them there is great reward. Maybe he was thinking of Psalm 1 and the blessed man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. For that man, it says that he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Think about that for a minute. Its leaf does not wither. There's no withering of his vitality. There's no loss of vitality for this one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Anxiety will not touch him. He will be at peace at all times. There was a point in my life when I thought that regular Bible reading was, I don't know, legalistic. Not sure where I got that conclusion from. Now I feel like I can't get enough time in to get into the word of God. The reality is that just like prayer, you can never have enough of it. Again, Paul says in our text, let your mind dwell on these things. One author says it this way, he defines the the dwell on these things in this way, to ponder, to give proper weight and value to, and to allow the resultant appraisal to influence the way life is to be lived. Thinking on the goodness and truthfulness of the word of God ought to be a regular habit of your mind precisely because what you take into your mind is what will influence the way you think and act. 
I wrote down what Pastor Chris said this morning. He says, the more you know who God is and all his greatness and all his fullness, I'm adding a couple of things in there, I'm sorry, but the more you know who God is and all of his greatness and all of his fullness, the smaller your problems become. The more you think on how great he is, how good he is, how gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth he is, the smaller your problems become the more easily it is for you to cast those cares and anxieties on his big shoulders because you know he can handle them. You ought to have regular, a regular diet of those truthful, good, right, and honorable, excellent things, those things that are worthy of praise. You need to be in the word of God daily, building yourself up in the faith. One of my high school football coaches would always say, you play how you practice. And that is true. Whatever disciplines you sow while you're in practice, those things are going to come out on the field. When difficulty arises, things that would shake you to your core, what inevitably comes out is what you have sown during times of non-conflict. Sometimes we sit back and relax during those times of non-conflict, those times when we have it easy, when things are going well. We sit back, we let our guards down. And then when conflict comes, we kind of gird ourselves up, we dive into the word of God, we start reading, we start praying, but we find it so hard. Because it's hard to focus on God's truth when you're anxious, when you're in the midst of that anxiety, when it's gripped you. If in your downtime you let your mind wander into frivolity, then when conflict comes, that's what you'll have to sustain you. But if to the contrary... You indulge in God's word and God's truth. You rest your mind on the things above. You set your mind on the things above. You keep your mind out of the earth, as we talked about last week, and you set your mind in heaven, in the heavenly sphere, in the heavenly realm. And when those difficulties come, you'll be able to wade through it in confidence, in the confidence of the Lord. One author says this, we are to meditate on to prize as valuable, to be influenced by all that is true, all that merits serious thought and encourages serious mindedness, all that accords with justice and moral purity, all that is fragrant and lovely, all that brings with it a good word that speaks well, whatever has genuine worth of any sort and any merits of praise. It is the will of God that by giving attention to things which he approves, we should shape our minds to be like his. To those who do so, he pledges his guardian peace and his own presence as the God of peace. When you come before God's word, whether it is just in Bible reading or when you're pursuing Bible meditate memorization, pray what David says in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law and let the word of God dwell richly in you. Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's the promise that God gives us. Again, what are God's provisions for peace in the midst of anxiety? He gives us prayer, he gives his promises, and finally he gives his people. Look again at verse 9. The things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. I talked to you all a number of times about my spiritual father last week. I'm truly grateful for the influence that he had in my life for many reasons, not the least of which is the fact that I've never had a more godly man call me son in the way that he did. There are so many aspects of his life that I wish to emulate. 
Now, he was not a perfect man. There are none save for the Lord Jesus, but he was a godly man. He was a man of prayer. That was his ministry after his full-time ministry was through. He had taught in Bible colleges. He pastored many times. He was even the president of a Bible college in Alabama. After he retired from full-time ministry, though, and cancer had started to work his way through his body, he labored in prayer for some 130 people daily. That was his ministry. He was also an amazing preacher. I mean, he could alliterate like no one. I told you that's where I got it from, right? He knew the word of God so well and did such a good job of handling the word that he knew just the right words to summarize and teach God's truth. When we had such similar personality, he was somewhat introverted and a little melancholy, maybe a little more than me, but sometimes I give him a run for his money. He was also an incredible encourager. I don't know how many times I've called him discouraged or we visited discouraged, and I've left just with complete confidence in the Lord and complete and total confidence in him. Paul says again, the things which you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. He said in chapter 3, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In other words, follow me as I follow Christ. Certainly God has given us pastors and shepherds like Pastor Chris to lead, to preach, to teach, to live an exemplary life before us that we would have an example to follow. That's how God has designed the body of Christ. And we may have other people in our lives, those, those other spiritual leaders like my spiritual father, other spiritually minded folks who have impacted your life. The point is that we have them go before us so that we can follow in their steps. We have their example for that reason. What we see that is God honoring in their lives, the way in which they live exemplary lives, we must follow. And as we follow, Paul says, the God of peace will be with you. How do we find peace and anxiety? Follow in the footsteps of those who follow Christ and those who exhibit peace and trust in him. He says again, the God of peace will be with you. Paul was confident in saying that because he knew the God of peace. He's going to speak on contentment in just a few verses as he talks about the different circumstances that he goes through. He spoke of the joy that he had even sitting in prison for the cause of Christ. Even the longing that he has to be with Jesus and yet to remain with the believers for their joy. Paul knows the God of peace, and he lives life before the God of peace and is confident to say, if you follow me, you'll find him also. Our faith is not a solitary faith. We know that from passages like Ephesians chapter 4. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, and to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, he says, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So I kind of labored on those last few phrases there. The point is that each individual part has to participate in the life of the body so that the whole body can grow. That's how maturity happens. We don't have a solitary faith. If you're struggling with something, maybe it's because you're not availing yourself of the brothers and sisters who are around you who God has given peace to in the midst of difficult circumstances and who can help you and strengthen you. 
Pastor Chris is going through Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called into one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see the emphasis there that Paul is putting on relationships? We're teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's not just the leaders up in front who are responsible for teaching and admonishing. We are to do that for one another. I mentioned last week the tremendous gift that you dear brothers and sisters who have gone on ahead in faith and in life have within you. You can say to some young man or some young woman, some young husband or some young wife, some young parent, the things which you've learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things. You can say that and you ought to say that. I would urge that upon you. See that as your ministry, as an opportunity that God gives you. Those of you who are younger, take note of those who you see walking in the faith, experiencing the peace of God in the midst of any issues that will cause anxiety and imitate their faith. Reach out to them. Allow them to be an encouragement and a blessing to you. Don't be proud. Don't sit at home suffering. Reach out. Humble yourself. God has provided people in order to bless and encourage you, to strengthen you. Well, these are Paul's concluding exhortations to the church, but I don't believe that they are random. And you can kind of see a progression in the passage. Those who endeavor to have peace in the midst of anxiety will inevitably go to the Lord first in prayer, and they will inform their prayers by careful meditation on his truth, and they will validate their thoughts and their conclusions by other godly saints who evidence faithfulness to Christ and the peace that comes from it. Do you struggle with anxiety? You are a citizen of the kingdom. Our king desires for you to have joy and peace. The king is coming, but he knows that we are in need of his sustaining peace today. Thus, he's provided the remedy for it in the provisions of prayer, his promises, and his people. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. Meditate on his truth, pray, follow after his godly ones, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Father, thank you for this day and for this time that we've had. Thank you for your word, which is true, which sanctifies us. Help us to walk in your truth. Help us to trust you for peace. Help us to remember to pray, to saturate our minds with your truth. Help us, God, to remember to avail ourselves of our brothers and sisters who've gone on before and whose lives you've worked in. In Christ's name, amen.